0: We are going to turn now to God's Word, and so uh, if you have a copy of um, of the Bible in front of you, please do uh, grab that. Maybe it's on a device, and so you want to uh, be scrolling through there to Acts chapter 8. Um, if you're watching and you don't have a copy of, of God's Word and you would like one, please do let us know. We'd love to send one out to you, um, just so that you have one, uh, so that you can see God's Word for yourself and read the, the joy that's in it. Um, but today, as I mentioned, we're going to continue uh, with this series that we launched last week through the portion in... The Book of Acts. Um, as we said last week, we, uh, we we looked at the first chunk of Acts, so from the very opening of the book through to chapter six, verse seven, we looked at that back in 2018. And so, if you want to go back and check those messages out, please do. They're still on the website or on the podcast. Um, but from now until the summer, then we're going to explore from chapter six, verse eight, through to the end of chapter twelve. And it's a it's a wonderful section of this great book, as, as we see the Church of Jesus Christ, the, the first Christians. Uh, move from the the safety of Jerusalem to the regions around them and as we said last week in essence it follows the second stage of the the blueprint that Jesus himself laid out In, in Acts 1 verse 8 we see Jesus himself saying but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth and so from the beginning of the book Uh, Right up until chapter 8 we see the church in Jerusalem and now as a result of what we saw last week with the death of Stephen uh, we see the church scatter from Jerusalem to the surrounding areas uh, of Judea and Samaria and that's why uh, we've called this series The Church on the Move. Um, And we can see as we turn our attention now to to Acts chapter 8 we can see from the first three verses of that chapter uh, that this was a deeply unpleasant time For the and troubling time for the early church just look at those first three verses on that day a great persecution that day being the day that Stephen died on that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him but Saul began to destroy the church going from house to house he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison this was a This was a horrendous time for the early church. This new community who had been enjoying and sharing all of life together. We read about it in Acts 2, 42 to 47. This example of of sharing teaching, of worshipping together, of fellowshipping in that true sense of the word. And this new community is now being ripped apart. And and the language here in verse 3 of Saul's treatment of the church is violent language. He, He begins to destroy the church, indeed the ESV and other translations, Uh, take that term destroy and talk about how Saul ravaged the church and that that sense almost of a of a wild animal tearing its prey apart this was this was brutal what was happening to our early brothers and sisters but as we saw last week uh, this man Saul his treatment of the church was far from the end of the story far from the end of his story far from the end of the story of the church. You see, Saul, the persecutor here, who we meet in these verses, is then met by Jesus in Acts chapter 9. He's transformed by Jesus. He becomes one of the greatest heralds of the good news of Jesus the world has ever known. He becomes the Apostle Paul. And so Saul's story doesn't end in chapter 8, and neither does the church's. God, as we saw last week, had bigger plans going on. And so as we see Saul trying to stamp out the early church, of course, God's plan was bigger than that. And far from it. In fact, John Stott actually says, instead of smothering the gospel, persecution succeeded only in spreading it. Of course, that was God's plan all along, that, that his church would grow and spread and, and many more would be welcomed into his family along the way. That, that's what we see in Acts 8 you You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And so that's the context in which we're picking up here in chapter 8. The church is on the move from Jerusalem out and out to Judea and Samaria, just as Jesus had said. And so today we're going to see the first encounters that take place as the church moves. And the majority of chapter 8 focuses on the experience of one man, Philip. Uh, But let's not skip over verse 4. See, in verse 4 we read, Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Those who had been scattered, you see, the the task of spreading the good news of Jesus was not confined simply to the apostles. Indeed, as we saw from verse one, the apostles are the ones who stay in Jerusalem. They continue to lead the church there to to oversee the whole ministry as a whole. And so it was it was regular Christians, if there is such a thing, who, who were scattered. And they were the ones who continued to preach the word wherever they went. And I think that's remarkable. Despite the persecution that we were reading about, despite the the unknown that they are then walking into, the one thing they could do was share the good news of Jesus. And isn't it a challenge to all of us that however we spend our days, whatever our role might be in in workplace or family, I wonder, could we be known as people who preached the word wherever they went? The image it conjures up for me here is like like an army of ordinary people spreading from Jerusalem, taking the message with them as they go to wherever they go. And then in verse 5, we're, we're introduced to Philip and Philip's encounter in a, in a Samaritan city. Uh, and that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning. But um, but what do we know about Philip? So verse 5 begins with Philip went down to. Well, what do we know about this man, Philip? Well, like Stephen, we're, we're introduced to Philip back in Acts chapter 6. Uh, And the church is setting up its its ministry of service. It's it's often referred to as deacons. And there was a dispute in Jerusalem, uh, in the Jerusalem church about food not being evenly distributed to those in need. need. And so the apostles say in verse three of chapter six, we will turn this responsibility over to a bunch of people that they ask the church to elect. There are seven men, verse three says, uh, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. And then in verse 5 we read, and Philip was one of those. And so Philip is a man full of the Spirit, uh, full of wisdom. And, and what we're going to see as we look more intently at his encounters in Acts 8, is that's exactly true of Philip. He was indeed a man full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Uh, and so he's not an apostle. Uh, he's a deacon in the early church and he's been sent out. Or he is on his way uh, and he goes to Samaria. And so we're going to focus on verses 4 through to verse 25. Uh, And we're going to highlight a couple of things from these verses as we continue to think about the church on the move. And so we're going to see how this this church on the move carries this message. Uh, As we read in verse 4, they preached the word. Well, what was that word? I think what we're going to see today is we're going to see God's message that went, and we're going to see how that message was powerful. It is a powerful message with word and actions fueled by the Spirit. And we'll also see how that message provokes a response it is a provocative message. And, and that response is really a matter of the heart. And so we'll think a little bit about those two issues. We'll think more about that as aspect of power before we turn towards the end to think about how it is a provocative message. Um, but before we, we look at the message that goes out, perhaps it would be useful to keep in mind who Philip is speaking to here, the Samaritans. I'm, I'm not sure if you are how familiar you are with the Samaritans or. Or what other biblical accounts come to mind when you think of the Samaritans? Maybe you can recall the the parable that Jesus told of the good Samaritan. That that stranger who helped to provide support and comfort to a Jewish man who had been left dead by robbers. And it was a parable recorded in in Luke chapter 10. And one of the main plot lines in that parable was the scandal of a Jewish man being helped by a Samaritan. And that was scandalous because there were centuries of division and hatred between these two groups of people. The Jews and the, Mar- the Samaritans detested one another in many ways and, and refused to socialise or mix with one another. And so Jesus' parable was incredibly offensive to his original Jewish audience. I mean, how, how could a Samaritan do anything considered that could be considered righteous? Surely they were religiously unclean people. Certainly they, they were not God's holy, true people as the Jewish people were. And we see these cultural differences again in John chapter 4, where Jesus purposefully walks through a Samaritan area, which Jewish men just didn't do. But he encounters a woman at the well in a town called Sychar. And Jesus asks the woman for a drink. And when the woman, even the woman then acknowledges that how etiquette and and tradition is being broken, she actually states, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And then John adds this helpful footnote for Jews did not associate with. Samaritans and so it's clear here that there are social differences as well as religious differences between the Jews and the Samaritans and these differences are deeply rooted they're they're ingrained into the culture of both groups however in both groups in the Jewish culture and Samaritan culture there was an expectation of a messiah of a saviour to be sent but as Jesus explained to the woman at the well he is the messiah he is the saviour I am he he says to her he is the Christ, the one God has sent to save the world. And so we see Philip picking up the, those themes, that, that, that message of the Messiah that has come whenever he visits the Samaritan city. And so if we look at some of the content of the message that Philip shared, we get an understanding uh, of what this message was that brought such power. And so we see him say, Philip, in, in verse 5 of Acts chapter 8, Philip went down to, this, to Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. Later in verse 12, we see he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. And so we see these themes here of Messiah, kingdom of God, the name of Jesus. Well, why is this all important? Well, it's important because Jesus is the Messiah. That is the message. He's the one who can save people from their sins, bring them into right relationship with God. He's the one who established God's kingdom. Indeed, indeed he's the king who who sits on the throne in that kingdom. And so because of his saving work, he has the power and the authority to sit on that throne. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the only one worthy. And because of who he is, the the very son of God, and because of what he's done, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, he is to be praised, he is to be obeyed, he is to be adored. That's the message that Philip proclaimed. He is the Messiah. This message of the kingdom of God, the name of Jesus Christ, and that's the message that we pertain today. We, we have this clear and joyous message to share, and his name is Jesus. He's the one has taken the penalty of our sin and defeated it, so that when we confess our sins before him, when we submit our whole lives to him as our king, We might be deemed righteous before God, welcomed into his daily and eternal presence. This is the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. So that's the message that Philip proclaimed. And we know from this passage, and indeed throughout all of Christian history, that, that this message is one of power. It's not just words that we speak, but we know that God the Holy Spirit equips those who proclaim this message. And the Spirit's transformational power accompanies that great news. And So we see this when we pick up Philip's account again in verse 6. And let's read it through to verse 8. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all pay, paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralysed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. And as we've seen throughout the earlier chapters of Acts, and indeed throughout the earthly ministry of Jesus recorded in the Gospels, there were great acts of spiritual power that accompanied the proclamation of the good news of Jesus. And so we see people healed, we see demons driven out, we see these visible demonstrations that were intended to provide evidence that the message that was being proclaimed was true. If you think of Luke chapter 5, we see some friends bringing a paralysed man to Jesus for him to be healed. And when the when these friends lay their friend before Jesus, he says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew that they were thinking what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? but i want you to know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins so he said to the paralyzed man i tell you get up take your mat and go home immediately he stood up in front of them took what he'd been lying on and went home praising god you see the miracle was to be was to be visible evidence to show the power and authority that jesus has over the unseen that 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 internal transformation of wiping away sin and restoring hearts to god We could know that that was true because Jesus also had authority to drive out demons to heal the sick. And so here it is in Samaria with Philip. The signs and the miracles, they're they're a wonderful demonstration of God's grace and his goodness and the restoration that is to come when God's kingdom is fully realised. But it would be totally wrong for these signs to be an end in themselves. Philip isn't a a travelling showman able to do fancy tricks. No, the, the signs Or so that the Samaritans witnessed them. And then at the end of verse 6 we see they saw the signs that were performed. And they all paid close attention to what he said. See the message that the powerful signs pointed to was greater than the signs themselves. The message that the signs pointed to was greater than the signs themselves. The Messiah. The kingdom of God. The name of Jesus Christ. That is the greatest news. And so they're backed up by these signs to show you have got to pay attention. And I, and I love verse eight; these eight words that goodness couldn't, we, wouldn't we want to scream these over Belfast? These eight words. So there was great joy in that city. There was great joy in that city. Of course there was. With such a powerful proclamation of the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God, in the name of Jesus Christ. Such visible signs of people knowing freedom that comes from his spiritual presence. Surely joy was the only outcome. Great and and lasting and liberating joy. The the joy of knowing sins forgiven. the, The joy of knowing adoption by God as his son or his daughter. The joy of knowing God as our heavenly father. That's joy. And these Samaritans experienced it by the bucket load. And so we see here that the church is on the move and as the church goes made up of of hundreds of individuals who continue to share the good news as they went then we hone in on Philip in Samaria and and we see here this powerful message words of truth that are fueled by the spirit and therefore the result is joy in those who respond and as we move on then we we see the more detailed story of one individual, the man who becomes known as Simon the Sorcerer. Um, but before we do that, as we've been thinking about the Holy Spirit, there, there's a potential confusing section in the middle of this story that I think it would be helpful to deal with first. Uh, and so this is sort of sandwiched in the middle of Simon's story, but let's deal with it on its own. It's from verses 14 to verse 16. So when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had re- had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. You see, this seems to be a, a strange occurrence, doesn't it? And, and it could lead us to ask a few questions. Why did why did the Samaritan believers not receive the Holy Spirit when they believed? Was there something incomplete about philip's ministry that the jerusalem apostles then had to come and and fix in some way is this a pattern of of church structure which means that there are only a select few who can bestow the holy spirit on believers these are these are big questions and indeed they're questions that have caused a big difference in belief and practice within christian churches and the foundation of these questions can be i guess summarized in asking when do christian believers receive the holy spirit Is it at the time of accepting Jesus as our Lord and Saviour, that that moment of repentance? Or or is the Spirit received at a separate time? Well, When we reach verses like this that cause us questions, uh, it's important to let the whole council of Scripture help us interpret specific Scripture, not not just read one verse and taking that practice as as normative. And so when we look wider than this one example, we do see that the Samaritan scenario is, is by far an exception to the normal teaching and practice of the New Testament. And so we'll come back to to why there's a difference here and what we're to learn from it. But a a quick summary of a couple of other verses will help us to see the normal practice and teaching of the early church, which, of course, we should then try to follow. Um, So firstly, staying within these verses themselves, we get an indication that there's something unusual occurring here, uh, something that's breaking the mold of the normal pattern. Um, If you look again with me at verse 16. So Peter and John come from Jerusalem to Samaria because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus or or many other translations state they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus suggesting there had been something lacking in in what was expected to have been experienced that the normal pattern in teaching would have been that the Holy Spirit had been received at that time if we go back even in within Acts and look at the day of Pentecost in Luke 2 sorry in Acts 2 we see the Holy Spirit demonstrating himself in powerful ways among the disciples. Peter then addresses the crowd, explaining the good news of Jesus. And in response to a question on how those hearers should respond to this message, and Peter clearly says in verse 38, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the act of repentance, having sins forgiven, receiving the Holy Spirit is one event. There was nothing extra that needed to happen at a later stage. The, the Spirit would be sent in that moment of repentance, of faith and forgiveness. And finally, then, let's, let's look at Romans 8 verse 9. You, however, this is the Apostle Paul writing, remember the persecutor Saul? This is now Paul writing. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. So can you see that link? That that belonging to Christ means we have the spirit. They are one and the same. And therefore there cannot be a time when you are a Christian that you have not received the Holy Spirit. God's spirit indwells those who believe. And so hopefully those verses help to show that the apostles teaching is is that to be a Christian is to receive the, the Holy Spirit. That's the normal pattern. So then we have to ask, why is this scenario in Samaria different? Why was the Spirit not received like like normal circumstances, if we can say that's normal? Well, the good news of Jesus reaching Samaria was far from normal. Remember the the division and the animosity that we talked about earlier between the the Jewish and Samaritan people? Well, with that, that history, could it be that God sovereignly withheld his Spirit from falling? in order to show that his church would break down those long-held divisions, that his church would span the cultural and traditional divides. And so God ensures that there is visible unity between the Christians in Jerusalem and the new Christians in Samaria. You see, that the underlying tension and division between the Samaritans and the Jews had the potential to creep into the new Christian faith. And so this encounter shows that, that a confirmation that the Samaritan Christians were fully fledged and accepted members of the Christian community. And so Peter and John, the, these heavyweights, if you like, in the Jerusalem church, joined Philip in Samaria. They warmly welcomed the Samaritan churches. And in doing so, it's proved that they are fully fledged members of the Christian community. I find Geoffrey um, Lamp helpful as he explains that it had to be demonstrated to the Samaritans, beyond any shadow of doubt, that they had really become members of the church. In fellowship with the original pillars. An unprecedented situation demanded quite exceptional methods. See, rather than these verses providing a confusion for us, they actually demonstrate a real work of God as He as He watches over and protects His early church. He's making it visible to the world that His love and His mercy and His grace crosses over all sorts of man made boundaries. Of, of culture and religion and history and ethnicity or class none of those boundaries count for anything when it comes to accepting the good news of Jesus Christ, when it comes to joining his church and isn't that good news indeed and so we've we've seen the, the, the powerful message that Philip proclaimed with the Samaritans and um, we've explored the, the coming of the Holy Spirit to those believers and so the final aspect of this encounter that we're going to look at this morning will take us back to Simon the sorcerer who we met before the visit of the Jerusalem apostles so we are introduced to him in verses 9 through verse 13 and his example shows that that the message of Jesus is not only powerful but it is provocative see Simon was a we read in verses 9 to 13 he's a powerful influence in the city He's, he's a man with quite the following quite the reputation and a pretty high opinion of himself But he encounters Philip and he's captivated by the message and the signs that accompany that message. And we're told that that Simon believed Philip's message and followed him. And then Simon witnesses the Holy Spirit coming on the Samaritan believers when the the apostles laid their hands on him and he's fascinated. And we see that the the, the showman in him loved this ability, this, this power and so he offers them money to be able to, in his mind, perform the same kind of trick. But of course this spiritual act was not in any way intended to be a show or, or a performance and it certainly wasn't for sale and so Peter strongly rebukes Simon for his attitude strongly rebukes him for for his failure to understand what has really gone on and we may wonder how Simon got it so wrong but I actually think this morning we need to recognize a very serious warning in these verses you see Peter cuts right to the core of the issue with Simon when he says in verse 21 your heart is is not right before God. These are cutting words. These are provocative words. But these are inspired words as as God has given Peter insight into what is really going on. See, Simon's heart was not right before God. But but hang on a minute. In verse 13, did we not see that Simon himself believed and was baptised? So what's going on here? Well, I think what we see here is that it is possible to be wide by the works of god it is possible to believe that his good news is true it is possible to be part of a church community but but all along our hearts are not right with god you see true and genuine repentance of sin and commitment to following the way of jesus means a complete overhaul of life and simon's life just doesn't demonstrate that we see it here in verse 23 as peter says to him for i see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. See, Simon hasn't experienced the the joyous freedom that comes from totally surrendering our hearts, our lives, our souls to Jesus. So he's still being held captive by the sin that separates him from the love of God. He's not allowed the message of Jesus to fully penetrate his whole life. And so can I lovingly plead with us all in the way that Peter does with Simon that regardless of how long we've been around church, or how impressive we think the teaching of Jesus is, make sure that we've given more to Jesus than just a casual nod in his direction. As Peter here says to Simon, the only right response, the only response to getting our hearts right before God is in verse 22, repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you. See, see, for each and every one of us, the opportunity to repent and be forgiven is there. That that's that's the truth and the joy of verses like First John first uh, John one nine. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's First John one verse nine. Jesus has done everything that is needed for our hearts to be made right with God. That's why He came to the world. That's why He died on the cross. That's why he rose from the grave and now is ascended in heaven at the right hand of the Father. Jesus' is saving work so that our hearts can be made right with God is finished. And for us to know the reality of having our hearts made right before God, we have to give him our whole heart, our whole lives. Not just a nod of approval or an appreciation of some good moral teaching. We must give all of ourselves to him. Because he gave all of himself for us. That's why this message is also provocative. Because it demands our all. And for, for some of us that, that seems like too much. But if that's the case then, then maybe, maybe it would be helpful to step back and see the fuller picture. The, the reality of what has been done for us. See as we mentioned a few weeks ago. The reality of the good news can be seen in this verse from 2 Corinthians That God made him who had no sin, that's Jesus, Jesus had no sin, but God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The enormity of that statement shows that giving our all to Jesus is the only fitting response. Because of what Jesus has done for us to make our hearts right before God, to remove the stain of sin from our lives so that we know relationship with the eternal, majestic, creator, loving, holy and and just God. That's what Jesus has done. That is the good news. And he did this all by leaving the glory of heaven, coming to earth as a man, dying a a brutal and lonely death, before rising triumphantly from the grave. And as I've said, reigning now in heaven, waiting to usher in his kingdom in all its fullness. This is King Jesus. And this is the only one who gave himself for the world. The only one who could. So this message is powerful. but This message is provocative. It demands a response. And I pray, we pray, we we earnestly pray that you would know this incredible love. You would respond to Him by giving your whole life to Him and therefore be transformed into His likeness by His Spirit, which will indwell you. See, God's message is powerful, God's message is provocative, God's message is transformative. Genuine faith in Jesus transforms our whole lives. Our, our attitudes, our words, our priorities, they're all overhauled because the root of our very beings has changed. Our hearts have been made right with God. This is the wonder of the good news of Jesus Christ. It, it was the wonder of the news that the Samaritans heard. It was the, still is the wonder of the good news that we share today. The message is powerful the message is provocative and let's be people who respond to this message in fullness that we give our all to him and therefore we demonstrate the power of this message by living a a faithful following, obedient life to our King Jesus Let's, let's pray together as we've heard God's powerful, God's provocative message. Let's pray before our Father. God, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for the, the joy and the life that is in your Word that you give us through your Word. Father, we thank you that, that in your Word we see your great salvation plan. We see that the joy of the message of Jesus, your Son, who came so that we, so that He who was not, He did not have sin, became sin, so that we would know the righteousness of God, and we would be the righteousness of God. Father, we thank you. We we marvel once again at this glorious good news. And God, we recognize that, that there are there are many times when 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 we fail to, to lay our all before you, when we try to take back some control, some, some area of our life that, that we want to have our way rather than submitting it to yours, God, we, we recognise that this is a, a frighteningly common occurrence. And so, God, we, we pray and we do again confess that before you. And we thank you, Father, that we know that when we confess, you are faithful and just and you do forgive our sins. And so, God, those of us who know you, those of us who have committed our lives to you, Father, would we, would we know the empowering of your spirit again? Would you fall afresh, we pray? Would you fill us so that we may live this, this faithful, obedient life that you call us to live? And help us, Father, to share this wonderful, powerful, provocative message with the world around us. And God, I pray for those who are, who are tuning in this morning, maybe haven't submitted their lives to you. Father, would you work by your spirit? Would you have all of us to appreciate the, the, the wonder of the sacrifice that you paid on our behalf so that, Father, your name would be glorified as we respond to your grace, as we live out the reality of your word, your truth, your power. So help us, Father, we pray. And God, it is for your glory that we ask all these things. And we pray that you would continue to move among us in your wonderful name. We ask it, Amen, Amen. I'd, I'd love to if, if today um, you you need to have a chat with somebody uh, about uh, a challenge in this message, or maybe uh, maybe you have given your life to Christ for the first time. Uh, would you would you please get in touch with us? Help us to know um, and help us to. to Somehow, in any way we can, support you, answer questions, encourage you, pray for you. Uh, and, And so please do be in touch, get in touch.